10,000 years ago, Torres Strait was the Torres Plain. It was a land bridge. So how do we get there? How do you go from a plain at lower sea level in the Ice Age to now an archipelago of islands that now uh, hosts one of the, the world's most specialised maritime societies? Tudu is a small sandy case, smack in the middle of Torres Strait, so it's only about one kilometre long and maybe a few hundred metres wide. You sort of go, wow, yeah, what is going on with, uh, with, with Tudu? It's like it's not a very good place to live, but somehow they've created a sustainable um, community on this island uh, in terms of food, water, but also behind that is all this economic might and political might and, in a sense, military might. It has an extraordinary history. In a sense, Tudu is like the Singapore of, um, of, of, of Central Torres Strait. And it was set up as like a major economic sort of centre. And at these places that you would go, how come there's so, there's so much going on here? It's like you have to understand the sort of the geopolitics. A lot of this has been sort of hidden away in anthropological books, but now we're sort of trying to bring it out. We're, we're hoping we can provide very interesting long-term historical precedents for how Torres Strait Islanders have coped with environmental change and that hopefully that that will give us a better understanding of how people in the past built these resilient communities to live sustainably. So what are the lessons from the past that we can have now come through and build community strength, etc., and sort of coping with uh, the, the, the great challenges ahead? Welcome to the Monash Arts Researchers Podcast. In this episode, we hear from Professor Ian McNiven of the Monash Indigenous Studies Centre about the incredible discoveries made so far with world-first research into an Australian Sandy Cay Island, Tudu, and the project's future plans and opportunities. We hear about the Tudu's genius group on geopolitics, sustainable living designs, and how these insights can build greater resilience for not only island communities, but for all communities around the world. Professor of Indigenous Archaeology here in Monash Indigenous Studies Centre and I head up the teaching program but also we've got a very diverse group of researchers as well headed up by our, our postgrads, our PhD students working in many different places in Australia but also Papua New Guinea and that sort of community based um, Indigenous Archaeology is what we specialise in and we've got a world sort of reputation in that area which we're very proud of and only made successful by the, uh, the collaborations that we've developed over many years with many different uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait, Torres Strait Islander communities across Australia. The project's titled Life on the Edge, Archaeology of a Torres Strait Islander Reef Island Community and it is a discovery project um, with the Australian Research Council. It's working with uh, a number of Torres Strait Islander communities to understand the long-term development of strategies that allowed survival on the uh, small sandy cay of uh, Tudu in the central part of Torres Strait. It's not just me driving the, the research agenda. A lot of the, the research questions that I actually have in this ARC grant were uh, developed with by sitting down with community elders, etc. And we came up with this, this research agenda together. So, um, so we've developed a project together, we've got to implement it together, and when we get the results coming through, we've got to interpret them together, and then we'll even publish the results together as well. So right from the beginning, right through to the end, it's very much a, an integrated collaborative uh, venture. I guess it's sort of research people from university um, joining forces with local indigenous communities to understand you know, their, their, their past on their terms. 
they're, they're very proud of this uh, of this extraordinary history of their ancestors, and together we're going to try and bring out this this, this history. The archaeology of islands is, is actually the key question in Australian archaeology because um, islands around the coast of Australia mostly formed in the last 10,000 years with sea level rise. Before that, when you go back in the Ice Age, the entire continental shelf was exposed and the water comes in at the end of the Ice Age with the melting of ice, etc. So what my mountaintops now become islands. Um, and that's been like one of, the, one of the key areas that archaeologists have looked at, particularly if you're a coastal archaeologist. But they're rocky islands. Right? So um, we know in the last sort of three, 4,000 years, particularly along the Great Barrier Reef, you get these uh, sandy K reef islands forming. Um, but people have tended not to look at those, to look at the archaeology of those. They want to go to the rocky islands. However, um, while that's been neglected in Australia, that type of uh, research in the Pacific, particularly in Polynesia and Micronesia, for, for many, many decades, archaeologists have been working, getting an understanding of, again, that, that, that same question, how do people live sustainably on what are often quite precarious sort of uh, island uh, landscapes. Little water, little food, lots of seafood, but these other two areas of, of plant foods and water are obviously often extremely difficult to uh, obtain. So what are, what are the things that people do to allow you to have water and plant food throughout the year to live sustainably? And we have a lot of information about that from, um, from out in the Pacific. This hasn't been done in Australia before yet probably 300 of the thousand or so islands of the Great Barrier Reef are coral caves. And we know that Aboriginal people down the Queensland coast, but also in Torres Strait, there's lots of sandy caves there as well, there were specialised coral cave societies. And we know almost nothing about them in terms of their long-term um, development. So that's one of the key things with this uh, new ARC project is provide the first insights into the development of a specialised sandy cave society in Australia using Tudu in the central part of Torres Strait as a case study. People, uh, because of colonial processes, were moved off Tudu around uh, probably 1900, 1910, something like that, and they moved back to another island that they in fact had a very close relationship with, and that is still a thriving community today. And that's where you find a lot of uh, the, um, the contemporary Tudugal people, the descendants of the, of, the, of the people who were there in the 19th century. And they, have, and they, they can show that with their genealogies, etc. Et it, it's very clear. So, um, and they have a very sort of strong connection with their ancestral homeland. I first came to know Tudu uh, by visiting Torres Strait in the mid-1990s, doing work with uh, um, local community members, documenting different culture sites, in fact, across Torres Strait. We're trying to work out ways of better recording and protecting cultural sites and I went to uh, Yam Island or Yama Island in central Torres Strait. I was looking at a few places there and talking to a few elders and they sort of said actually you know what you should come across it's like a million hour ride in the dinghy why don't you come across the sea with us we'll take you to our ancestral island of Tudu we'd like to introduce you to this to, to this island and get your thoughts on it. So I went there and my initial impression was who would live here um, but then they started taking me around and they started showing me all sorts of very special cultural places and I thought wow there's something interesting going on here and then I started reading a lot more sort of historical records particularly um, the very famous sort of records that go with the Cambridge Anthropological Expedition to Torres Strait 
in 1898, which is basically a landmark uh, expedition in the sort of uh, the history of anthropology, where um, Cam Cambridge and a, a sort of set up this project where there was all these different disciplines, different researchers came to Torres Strait to get a better understanding of Torres Strait Islander society. They ended up producing like six volumes of anthropological information, and there's quite a bit of information about Tudu because the head of the expedition, Alfred Haddon, he was actually taken uh, to Tudu, a bit like I was, and introduced to the island, but he sat down with some of the old people, um, and particularly this one old fellow called uh, Maino, and Maino's descendants still live on, on Yam Island, and I've, I've got to know them quite well. And he wrote down all these sort of detailed records about the way that people used to live on, on, on Tudu. Um, so that sort of gave me all these ideas about sort of how could I sort of as an archaeologist take that anthropological information and then sort of use my archaeological skills to work out what happened before the 19th century to lead to what Alfred Haddon recorded in the late 19th century. What is that long history? How long is it and how long did it take for these sort of, I guess, this extraordinary society to uh, develop through time? So that's essentially where we began. And then sort of chatting to more community members about you know, would they like me to sort of pursue a project with them and they started saying actually this all sounds very good so let's start kicking off a few pilot projects see how it goes and then if we think it's a it's a goer let's let, let's get into it and that's where we're at and we've got our arc grant so we're ready for action the first excavation we did was in 2000, so that's going back a bit now, and that was a uh, what we refer to as a dugong bone mound. So in Torres Strait, uh, it's known today as a, as a key place for dugong hunting. It's a very important food. It's a very prestigious food, and um, and the way that Torres Strait Islanders relate the dugongs, it's not just in terms of food, but there's a whole spiritual dimension there, and that that also goes not only into the into the into the meat and the fat, etc that people eat, but also how you dispose of the bones. And basically the bones still were considered to have a very sort of special sort of significance, symbolic significance, and they couldn't just be thrown away basically in a rubbish, uh, a rubbish heap. They had to be put in a very special place, and over time you actually get these bone mounds developing. Um, and some of them can be over a metre high, and they can have literally the remains of thousands of dugongs in them. And I was taken to one of these bone mounds on Tudu, and it was eroding into a creek and the feeling was maybe we could do an excavation there just to see what sorts of things I could find and also just to basically to put the pressure on me sort of saying okay we can see lots of things here on the ground what can you as an archaeologist with your techniques can you tell us something basically we don't know already so together we did an excavation there and we started finding all sorts of ways that the, the bones were sort of carefully stacked and all the special little artifacts and objects that were put into the into the bone mound so clearly it was a very important place pretty much for sort of the, the great great grandparents um, of the people i was talking to it dates to around 1900 so it's, it's a bit over 100 years old so that was the first introduction that people had of the sorts of things that archaeology could do and, and people liked the results of that Then we did a large survey of the island four years later uh, to go around the whole island. Um, and that was, I only got that permission to do that work because of the, I guess I sort of earned my stripes. Um, because Tudu is, 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 is very much a, uh, 
it's, it's, a, it's quite a sensitive island because people still believe that their ancestors walk around on that island. So you, you have to be very careful as an outsider going into that, uh, in, in, into that very special space and make sure that um, you abide by very strict cultural protocols. Uh, for example, you have to introduce yourself every morning and, and sign off every day uh, talking to the ancestors to make sure that they're happy with what you're doing. People are basically um, looking very carefully at the types of things that I find and the sorts of artefacts that I record because they know what I find and what I record is being dictated by their ancestors. So if I find interesting things, that's considered to be a good sign because in a sense people will sort of say you're finding those things because the ancestors are allowing you to find those things. I thought it was because I was a good archaeologist, but no, there's other things going on on Tudu, so, um, and that's very much the world that I operate within. So, like I say, I'm very privileged to uh, be allowed to sort of enter into this world and, and to have sort of the confidence of, uh, of uh, the, the, the people of Tudu that, um, so we can sort of carry this, this work forward. So. Naturally, they are not very good places to live, but that's the point. When people go to live on these islands, they transform them in terms of water availability and particularly plant food availability. So they now are sustainable. And that's the sort of thing that we're trying to understand. Now, in a place like Tudu, um, they had all sorts of strategies for um, uh, growing plant food. So they actually, on the island, there's all sorts of fruiting trees that were deliberately planted. I thought a lot of them were just there naturally, but I've had a, um, a botanist who's a who's an expert on Torres Strait plants, and he's, he's looked at Tudu and he's um, he said, this is not a natural distribution of plants. This, is, this has all been made by people. So he's almost sort of saying the entire island is like set up like a huge garden. So, but unless you actually have somebody with those skills, you, you wouldn't actually know. So you go, okay, that's the first thing. Um, the other thing you notice when you walk around Tudu is some of the large uh, trees the, particularly the fruiting trees, which are known as wongai, um, and people still eat wongai fruit. It's like a little looks. It actually looks like an olive, but it's actually sweet. So, um, and and probably in another uh, another month or so, you won't be able to get them because they've all sort of finished their 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 their, their, their crop. Um, but when you walk around and have a look at some of these trees, you'll notice underneath there's giant clamshells that have been picked up off the reef. And some of these clam shells are over a metre long and they, they are heavy. I mean, you would need a couple of very strong people to, uh, to lift these up and get them onto, a, onto the island. And these were set up around the base of uh, large trees, and sometimes you can get two or three of them, um, around each, each tree to collect water. So, that, so that's how desperate they are for water uh, collection and storage on, on this island. They're actually setting up these little, in a sense, little reservoirs around the, the base of trees. And when um, we, our first insight into this for Tudu was when the, the famous French explorer uh, de Monteville stopped off at Tudu at the end of his uh, uh, Pacific expedition in um, 1840. Well, actually, he didn't want to stop off at Tudu, he had no choice. He ran into the reef and his two ships got stuck at low tide. So basically, they emptied everything out of the ships to lighten them up, and somehow, miraculously, they got them off the the, the two ships got off the reef. In the week or so that it took them to get the, sh to get the ships off the, off, off the reef, some of the, uh, the crew were on the island and taking all sorts of notes and taking all sorts of sketches of what they saw there. And one of the beautiful sketches that we have is in fact of a large 
number of large trees with these giant clams around the base. So we have the sketch from 1840. You go there today, you can still see these clamshells around the bases of trees. So, um, so that's one of the ways you get over the water uh, shortage. There's also, they actually look a bit like sort of bomb craters. There's uh, these sort of, they go down sort of up to sort of two metres, dug into the sand. These are the old well sites that you have on the island. And, um, and probably for a lot of the, the daytime when these wells were there, there was no water in them. But as the, as the tide comes in, it lifts up the freshwater lens on these islands. And suddenly when the, you start getting towards high tide, the fresh water starts coming into the bottom of the well. And then people have this sort of particular window for a few hours where they can get the fresh water. Then the tide starts going down and the freshwater lens underneath the island starts going down so it disappears again. So it's, it's almost like the lens is alive. It sort of it comes and goes with the, with the rise and fall of the, uh, of the tide. Um, in the past, yeah, probably November, December, things are getting pretty bad on, on Tudu. If things got very bad, people would actually import water in these very large canoes that Torres Strait Islanders had. That's right across Torres Strait. These are canoes, dugout canoes with sails and double outriggers that are up to like 21 metres long. So they, they are big vessels. And, and people would import water from other islands, particularly people from Tudu. Um, they would go to their neighbours and they would get these bamboo tubes and they'd fill them full of water, put them in the bottom of the canoes. They would come back to Tudu and people would have water there as well. So that gets us on to another thing that part of the, one of the, I guess one of the key strategies of living successfully on Tudu is, you've got to have connections. You can't, no person lives on an island by themselves. These, these people have to be connected, right? You've got to draw on other people and their resources. So, but that then gets us on to another point with the people of Tudu. You might sort of say, but that would put you in a very vulnerable position because then you're relying on other people, right? So why don't some of their neighbours go, actually, we're not very interested in giving you water because, you know, basically we don't like you or whatever. You know, the whole sort of social relationship sort of break down. To get round that, this could be one of the reasons that the Tudu people um, had this extraordinary reputation for being fierce warriors. And they also, it looks like, took over the whole canoe trade in the central part of Torres Strait. You have to understand that, that these very large canoes that I'm talking about in Torres Strait, they're not actually made, or at least the hulls for these canoes aren't made in Torres Strait. All the big hull, canoe hulls of Torres Strait Islanders were imported from the adjacent Papua New Guinea coast. So the canoes are made up in, in, um, on the coastline of uh, Papua New Guinea from very large trees. They're hollowed out and they're made into uh, a, a basic sort of canoe and then that gets traded down into Torres Strait and then Torres Strait Islanders put these very elaborate outriggers, they put sails, etc., on them. So if you can all, uh, control the canoe trade in Torres Strait, you basically control everybody, right? Because everybody is indebted to you. And that seems to be what the people of Tudu have, have done, that they actually took control economically of the, uh, of the canoe trade in Torres Strait. So, that means that anybody that they have a social relationship, other islands, for example, they want to get water off, they've got something on them. Because if people decide not to give them water, they go, well, where are you going to get your canoes from? Because we, we're in charge of that. So they've actually manipulated the whole economy of the central part of Torres Strait so that they are actually 
and I guess in a in a very strong sort of economic position, and that people become sort of dependent on them. So here you've got a situation where you've got an island where you would sort of say, who would live there? It's got nothing going for it, and you go, but these people have actually set it up, so it's got everything going for it. They've controlled it economically. They've reinforced that because they have this warrior culture, and people actually fear them as well. So. Um, so they flex muscle. So it's economic muscle, but it's also physically they, f they flex muscle. With, with the people on Tudu controlling the uh, canoe trade, they, they did another thing as well, and this is sort of where, the, where they get quite brilliant. Um, not only were they controlling the, the product coming in, they also controlled the, the manufacture of the money that people used to buy them. So, and the key way that you bought a canoe in, uh, in in Torres Strait is with cone shell money. So you get these cone shells, and here's one right here. Um, so cone shells were the, one of the best places in Torres Strait to get cone shells is actually the, one of the large reefs that's next to Tudu. So that's another reason that uh, you, you might go, why would anybody live here? And it's like, you don't actually understand, a few hundred metres away is a reef that is basically the money reef. Right, where all the money is. So they, uh, the, the, the Tudu people, um, in a sense, were, were one of the, the key people behind the production of this cone shell money. And you could buy a, a canoe with, with just one or two of these cone shell um, artifacts. You can see that they're, it's not just the raw cone shell, it's been cut and shaped um, in, in, in a very particular way. And, and this, is, this is the most valuable object exchange object in uh, Torres Strait. So um, you don't see a lot of them in Torres Strait. Probably the place I've seen the most most examples of this is in fact walking around on Tudu, where I see them half manufactured. And these are old ones, probably from at least the 19th century, could be older. So I actually see the, the production um, process of the manufacture of the money that's still lying around on the ground surface on the old village sites on Tudu. If you want to see the really good examples of this, you have to go back to Papua New Guinea where the canoes are made. And if you walk into those villages today, they still have, as heirloom objects, these cone shell artefacts. And in fact, the one that I'm holding in my hand, that's where this came from, from the coast of Papua New Guinea. It's an heirloom object that was uh, collected back in the, um, the 1960s by a, a European trader. And... Um, and I know that that came from uh, Torres Strait and it could easily have come from Tudu. It was made on, on Tudu. So, um, and there it is. The first year of the project, we've got a, a number of options, but the, the key thing we want to do is excavate um, one of the, the two villages, the, the old village sites on the island. We want to understand how old the, the villages are, when did people start actually establishing like a some sort of permanent settlement on the island. So uh, historically we've got information, we've even got like photographs of what the village, one of the villages looked like with people sort of there in the thatched houses, etc. Um, when you go to those places now, you can see all these shells and there's some sort of uh, dugong bones and turtle bones, etc. Et and um, tools uh, on, on, on the surface. Um, but when you dig down, that's when you get the earlier levels of the village because over time they build up through time. And in some places, you can, the village can be like a metre deep 
of food remains, etc. Et so in a sense the ground surface is sort of coming up through time. So as archaeologists we dig down and we get early, early material um, and when we get to the bottom that's the first people that were that established the village so then we get radiocarbon dates on that material and then we, un and we will analyse all the, 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 the different objects and artefacts that we find to get an understanding of, of, of what people were doing at the village. So um, that's probably will be the first one is, is one of the major village sites. There's also, um, we want to excavate uh, um, some of the well sites to get an understanding of how old they may be. Uh, we want to start radiocarbon dating some of the, um, uh, if we can, some of the clamshell water containers. How long have they been there? I mean, some of these, these clamshell containers you can see today, um, they, they look like they're new, but we know they're at least like a, you know, 120 years old. So if they haven't changed much in the 120 years, I mean, there's there's no reason these some of these containers, facilities can't be like four or five hundred years old. Why not? I mean, it's very robust material, so uh, clamshells. So we want to get an understanding of that. Um, and I guess the the whole thing is that the the the, the way this island was set up, sort of um, economically and and politically. Is, is, was it like that right from the beginning, or is this something that's slowly built up through time? Right. So we hopefully will pick up sort of some of the shell money in these old village sites, so different places in the villages where the, uh, the shell money was made. Is that right from the beginning of the village, or has that only come in, say, halfway through the history of the village? So we, we want yeah, I mean, there, there is a history there to the, uh, to the occupation of Tudu, um, and we want to understand that. So the only way we can do that is by excavating and then documenting how things change through time and that, that'll give us an understanding of how these different strategies both develop and sort of, um, I guess, were uh, rolled out through time. We know it can't be more than, say, three or 4,000 years because that's, that's when these sandy caves started developing along the Queensland coast. So are people there right from the beginning when the sandy cave developed? three or four thousand years ago or is it have they been there for a, quite a while and then like the the the, the Tudugal, uh society and all the sort of complexity of it did that only develop say fifteen hundred years ago or a thousand years ago uh, are these are these societies quite recent or not so like I say the only way to find that out is to do archaeological excavations get lots of radiocarbon dates and start sequencing the uh, the, uh, the, the different artefacts, etc., we find putting that into some sort of time scale, and then we can start writing the history. And the first village we want to look at is, in fact, the village that uh, de Montdeville, the French explorer in 1840, stopped at. So he's actually got a sketch of the village, and like I said, because they were stuck on the reef, um, I still don't know how they got them off the reef. That, that these ships were high and dry. But anyway, they, they emptied everything out of the ship to make them lighter. Well, if you've been at sea for a number of years, there probably was a great opportunity to clean out the ship. So they probably didn't put everything back. So there's a very strong possibility that when we do the work there, we may actually find some objects um, from, uh, from de Montdeville from 1840. So there'll be that interesting sort of French connection there. So I, I think there has to be, there has to be. But, um, but that, that's the sort of thing that sort of gets us all excited, etc. You just don't know what you're going to find in archaeology. And certainly the, the local community members we're working with, I mean, they, they know this history as well, so they're dying to see what's, what's down there too. So they want to see what their ancestors did back in the past. So, and be there when it happens, because they'll be helping us dig. 
So, and they'll be finding these things themselves. So, yeah. Because this is a three year project and we're doing a lot of excavation, we're gonna be generating a lot of material. And I can't do it all by myself and neither can the, the people on um, the descendants, the Tudagal people today, they, they, they can't, they, they haven't got the time to sort of analyse all this material either. So uh, we're going to be uh, um, integrating a lot of uh, student projects into this uh, bigger ARC project. So um, there'll be easily sort of one or two PhD projects, but we're also going to be having a lot of honours students working on, on, on particular aspects of the materials that we excavate. So um, we anticipate that yeah, over the next three years there'll be pretty heavy student involvement in this project and we're certainly looking for students who might have an interest in, the, in this sort of thing to, uh, to, uh, to contact us and we'll also be reaching out for students as well. So, um, and not only get the wonderful opportunity of working on this material, um, you also have the opportunity of coming to Torres Strait and helping excavate the, the on, and living on to-do, um, but also getting to, to meet the, 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 the current community and. And, um, and that really, in one, in one sense, is, is probably the, the best part of doing this sort of community-based archaeology. The archaeology is fascinating, but the, the real highlight that, um, that I certainly find is uh, it's actually just uh, it's, it's working with local community members and just, just seeing the other sort of part of Australia, which, which most Australians, because we live in big cities, just don't really get to experience sort of that sort of those these sort of remote indigenous communities. So, um, it, it's, it's quite a privilege to, to be in this sort of position.